from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. And good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. The show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics at the Wharton School. Some combination of myself, my three co-hosts, Cade uh, Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed throughout the week. As I think hopefully everyone's been following us at at WMoneyballNo. I'm here by myself today. All three of my partners in crime are out doing other interesting things today, and I'm sure we'll hear about that on future shows. So this is a call-in show, has always been a call-in show for the three-plus years. So come join me, co-host with me if you'd like during the show, and let's chat about all topics in sports and business, please join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And as I said, uh, there'll be a lot of tweeting today at at WMoneyBall. So um, I think as everybody knows that's been listening to the show for three years, um, I watch a lot of sports. And so, um, you know, we always start the Wharton Moneyball show with our first half hour about what caught our eye on sports, uh, knowing that I would be here by myself in the host chair today. Uh, lots has caught my lots has caught my eye on sports. So let's just start rolling, and hopefully you'll join the conversation again at one eight four four Wharton. What caught your eye on sports? Um, the first one, you know, I'm a huge NBA fan. For those people again that saw my tweet this morning, I'm wearing my Sixers garb to celebrate the the Sixers. But I can't start with the Sixers. I'd love to start with the talking about the Sixers. But we have to start talking about the Celtics. Um, for those people that don't know, um, the Celtics have now won 16 consecutive games. And as a statistician, you start to wonder, you know, how likely is it that a team would win 16 consecutive games? And what can we say about this as a statistician? So the first thing most people would do, which would be an okay calculation, but not exactly right, and we'll talk about why, is, well... Let's imagine your chances of winning any game are 50-50. It's not a bad place to start. Each team has an equal odds to win the game. Let's take a half and say a half times a half times a half times a half, and let's just do that 16 times. I mean, think of it as this way. You're trying to flip a coin 16 times, and the only pattern that leads to 16 consecutive wins are 16 consecutive heads. Each one is a half. One half to the 16th power. For those of you that may be driving, may not be in front of your calculator, a half to the 16th is roughly one out of 64,000. Now, one out of 64,000 events don't happen that often. They're not the rarest thing. It's not like a you know a supernova passing by the Earth or something like that. But one out of 64,000 events don't happen that often. But let's talk about what might be wrong with that calculation. A, f- a couple of things. Number one, I'm making the assumption of independence. Like, wh- what a allows me just to say it's a half times a half times a half times a half. Maybe after winning two or three games, it's easier to win the fourth game or the fifth game. As everybody knows, I call that momentum. If Cade, Shade, and Adi were here, they would say, oh, not Eric on his momentum thing again. But let's call it what we all like to call it, non-stationarity. Why does it have to be a half every single game? As a matter of fact, we know sometimes the Celtics might be playing stronger teams, weaker teams. But the way I like to think about it is a half to the 16th power, or one out of 64,000, not a bad place to start. So number one, Could be lack of independence or momentum or non-stationarity could change that. The other way is, why am I assuming that the Celtics are only one half? 
to the 16th. Like, maybe their chances of winning games, even if it's constant, why is it a half? I mean, they're 16-2. and two. Why would I think they're only a 50-50 team? Now, this is really interesting. If instead of taking .5 or a half to the 16th, you took .6 to the 16th, let's imagine they're a 600 team, not a 500 team. Well, all of a sudden, that 1 in 64,000 basically shrinks by a factor of 10. So now it's something like 1 in 6,000. Now, 1 in 6,000 events happen, um, obviously more common than 1 in 64,000, but 1 in 6,000, that doesn't seem that rare. Now, they're 16 and 2, which is like 90%. Let's imagine you say, well, let's imagine there were a .7 team instead of a .5 team. Well, now that number is 3 out of 1,000. So now all of a sudden, it's not even that rare. So the reason I want to start start off Moneyball today with that, and again, if you want to join the conversation and talk, call, talk, call in and tell me what caught your eye in sports, please call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Think about the way we started. We started a half to the 16th, 1 in 64,000. Wow, that's really, really rare. But just even if I assume it's the same constant coin probability each time, if that number is 0.6, we're now 2 in 10,000 or like 1 in 5,000. And then if it's 0.7, it's 3 in 1,000. I see 3 in 1,000 events my life all the time. So do you. They're not. They're rare, but they're not that rare. So let's give the Celtics some credit, but let's not give them that much credit. It's pretty rare. And also thanks to my producer, Matt Datz, which I now have up on the screen. I mean, we have three recent winning streaks. Well, one's not that recent. I mean, obviously the NBA record, which I knew, Matt, by the way, but thanks for putting it up there, is the 71-72 Lakers, who won 33 straight games. We had the 14-15 Warriors win 28 straight games. The 2012-13 Heat win 27 straight games. So even if you just did it that way, like how rare is it? The Rockets, this one I didn't know, 2007-22 games. So even if you just look at that, like how rare, forget all this probability and math and all this other stuff, how many streaks in the NBA have been longer than it? They're actually a fairly large number. So even if, by the way, that's not a bad thing. Like how often have we seen NBA streaks that are longer than this? And the answer is in the last 10 years, we've at least seen three of them. So it's rare. No one's saying 16 in a row isn't impressive, but it's not that rare. And also just to give everybody a sense, um, one of the things I always like to look at in the NBA is plus minus, meaning how much is a team beating the other team by? And so just to give you an example, the Warriors are plus 10.4. So let's be clear, the Celtics have the best record, but do not have the best plus minus in the NBA. The Warriors do. Then you say, well, it's the Celtics. No, it's not the Celtics. It's the Rockets. So the Rockets are at plus 8.6. Then we come down to the Celtics at plus 8.1. So if we want to talk about them being a great team, I'm happy. It's a great streak. The fact that Gordon Hayward, their, we could argue their second best player, got injured you know, in the preseason or the first 10 seconds of the season, hasn't played a minute, and they're still 16-2. and two. Brad Stevens can be coach of the year, but let's not give them the, oh my God, this is the most rare thing I've ever seen award. As a matter of fact, this match was put up on my screen. There's 22 streaks, I guess, in the NBA history that are tied or longer than this one. So this is rare. It's not extraordinarily rare. And by the way, for those of you that are Cavs fans, the Cavs are only plus .2 this season, which means basically they've scored as many points as they've given up. That is not good. We talk all the time on this show about this idea of the Pythagorean theorem, that if you take your points scored and square it, 
and take the points you've given up scored and square it and take the ratio of the two, you basically get your win percentage. So again, an example is if you've scored 10,000 points, take 10,000 points squared. If you've scored nine, if you've given up 9,000 points, take 9,000 points squared. Take 10,000 squared divided by 10,000 squared plus 9,000 squared, and that gives you an idea of your win percentage. Now, this tends to hold for certain sports more than others, but the idea is the Cavs are a 500 team. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean there'll be a 500 team at the end of the season, but to me, this is really interesting. So I hope you like talking about uh, streaks as much as I do. Um, We'll be talking to Tom Haberstraw at 9 o'clock today, someone that knows extensively about the NBA. I'm going to talk to him about this streak. I'm going to talk to him about all things into the NBA. But again, uh, stay with us the entire two hours. The 9 o'clock hour, we'll be talking NBA. We'll be talking to Chase Stewart at 8.30 about the NFL. And so lots lots going on here at Wharton. Moneyball. So that was the first topic that caught my eye was the Celtics streak of 16 games. But even then, it's not that rare, and they're not even the best team in the NBA by many, many metrics this year. And as a matter of fact, their coach Brad Stevens has said it. Now, given for those of you that have followed us on Twitter at, at @wmoneyball, I hope you've seen me in my Sixers garb today. Um, I have to say I'm extraordinarily proud about the Sixers. I mean, the Sixers are nine and seven. Now you might say, well. You know, that's not so great. Well, remember, let's trust the process. The Sixers had, I think it was 10 wins a couple years ago. Then they went to 16 or 17 wins. And last year they were in the, I don't remember exactly, the 26 or 28 range, something like that. Well, now they appear to be an above 500 team. And let me say what's ridiculously impressive about this. Um, They've only played, of the 16 games, six at home and 10 on the road. So to me... They've had a ridiculously tough schedule. Matter of fact, of their first 14 games, four were at home, 10 were on the road. So they're, I mean, they're nine and seven, and they've played 10 road games. 10 road games. Now, let's compare that, by the way, to another team. People are saying, you know, Eric, aren't you from New York? What about your hometown Knicks? The Knicks are nine and seven. But the Knicks have played 11 home games and five road games. And this is why you have to dig a little deeper, by the way. It's not just record. I mean, I think the Sixers have outperformed the Knicks this year in some dimensions, even though they're both 9-7. and But something also interesting, the Sixers have a a zero-point differential, meaning they've given up exactly the same number of points they scored. The Knicks, on the other hand, are about a plus one, so they're fairly even. What's interesting about the two teams in comparison is the Sixers give up 109 points a game and score 109. The Knicks are at a score 104 and give up 103. So what concerns me, though, as a Sixer fan is you can only do so well uh, you can only do so well having given up 109 points a game. And thanks again to Matt. Uh, the Sixers were 28-54 and 54 last year. But the other thing that makes our 9-7 and seven record impressive is that we've played the Rockets twice and the Warriors twice, the two teams I just said were the best in the NBA. Now, I will say um, we were great against the Warriors for a half. Uh, we were leading by 22 at halftime. I was breaking open the champagne. And, of course, unfortunately, they play NBA four quarters in 48 minutes, not a half. Um, but we beat the Rockets. We're one and one against them. And for those people that watched the first game against the Rockets, um, we should have won that game. And a guy hit a fallaway three pointer right at the buzzer to beat us. But conceptually, but we beat the Rockets in Houston. We lost the game at home. I mean, we could be two and zero against the Rockets this year. And we've yet to play the quote unquote weaker teams in the NBA. Maybe the Nets, the Knicks, the Bulls. So the Sixers are off to a great start. 
I'm expecting great things. Um, and I'll be at tonight's game. I'm excited to see them play the Portland Trailblazers tonight. And it takes me to another Knicks top, uh, to another Sixers topic, which um, really caught the eye of not just me, but of statisticians, um, which was Joel Embiid. Uh, obviously, the Sixers' uh, top pick from a few years ago, uh, two years, three years ago, he didn't play his first season because of injury. He played 31 games last season because of injury. He's playing, obviously, this season. Um, against the Lakers last week, here was Embiid's stat line, which had never been met in the NBA. He had 46 points, 15 rebounds, 7 assists, and 7 blocks. I'm going to say that again. It's so impressive. 46 points, 15 rebounds, 7 assists, and 7 blocks. So this is ridiculously impressive. I mean, to, first of all, a center having 7 assists is impressive, uh, a set having 7 blocks. I think he may join my other favorite player in NBA history, Hakeem Olajuwon, which a lot of people compare Embiid to, although he shoots the ball better than Olajuwon. He may have a quadruple double at some point, which is double digits, if you'd like, in points, rebounds, assists, and blocks, which Hakeem Olajuwon did do. I think there's one other player, maybe Matt can look that up, who did a quadruple double. I know Olajuwon had one, and I believe there's one other one that's been done in the history of NBA, I will not be surprised if Joel Embiid does it. Now, of course, the the difficulty now is one one people want to argue who's your best player on the Sixers. Because let me say another stat um, for those of you that are Ben Simmons fans, um, look out! I mean, this guy is amazing. Um, one thing that that struck my eye and caught my eye in sports is he's actually scored double digits in every game he's played so far. So the guy's not only scoring well, but he's extraordinarily consistent. And one of the things we talk here about Wharton Moneyball, since we're a sports business and stat show, we talk about variance all the time. I mean, would you like the following player? And again, if you want to join the conversation and give me, thank you, by the way, that's who I thought it was, Matt, but I didn't want to do a shout out to my guy, Nate Thurmond. Uh, apparently there's a few. So Nate Thurman did it in 1974. Um, I was a little child, so I don't remember that game. Um, I do remember Alvin Robertson doing it in 86, Robinson, and of course, uh, David Robinson, I guess, did it in 1994. So a quadruple double. By the way, if you want to ask which one's more rare, we might as well talk about it. The 16-game win streak of the Celtics or a quadruple double. The quadruple double is much, much more rare. I mean, we've got basically we've got one a decade. We've got Nate Thurman in '74, Alvin Robinson in '86, David Robinson in '94, Hakeem. Uh, Matt is telling me has two. So maybe we've got five, five in history. So there's five of those in history, and 22 streaks longer than 16 games in history. So if we see Joel Embiid get a quadruple double. That's when you should go out to your window and scream to everybody, I've just seen something very statistically rare. 16-game win streaks, 18-game win streaks, it's rare, but it, it's not as rare as a quadruple double. The, the point I was trying to make earlier, though, was it's not obvious to me who the best player on the Sixers is. I mean, maybe it's Embiid. It could very well be Ben Simmons, and um, the good news is we have two ridiculously talented players on the team. But I will say the following, and I've said this, I've said this on Wharton Moneyball for the last three and a half years. Here's what I do know. If the game's down to the final possession, and I watched this for 15 years growing up as a child as a Nick fan, you can't have your best player on your team, offensive player, be your center. I can't count the number of times of the Knicks versus the Bulls growing up as a child where Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen would pressure the ball up the court, so now you cross the half-court line if you get across at all, and there's now 15 seconds left on the shot clock. 
They pressure the pass, so now the ball gets to Ewing with seven or eight seconds left on the clock. Remember, he's a seven foot one big man who's been pushed 17 feet away from the basket, and all of a sudden, now he's double teamed. He's got to pass the ball around. He can't create a shot for himself, and you end up taking a bad shot with your third or fourth best player. So I'm hoping as a Sixer fan, which I am, I'm hoping that uh, Ben Simmons is the Sixers' best player going forward because he's a guy that can have a ball in your hands. So again, this is Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM Business Radio 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. Uh, my co-host Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are doing other interesting things today, but I'm here to take your calls. I'm here to have a conversation with you, the sports fan, the statistics fan, the business fan. Please call us to join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. He takes your emails throughout the week. And also, of course, if you want to follow us on Twitter, please follow us at, at @wmoneyball. So there's lots of other interesting stuff going on in the NBA. And by the way, that's including if I mention the Sixers, um, people may not. I hope people don't forget we actually traded up for the number one pick in the draft this year, Markel Fultz. And he essentially hasn't even played. So we're 9-7 and seven and an up-and-coming team, and the guy who was the number one pick in the draft hasn't even really played this season. And so to me, it shows that the, the Sixers have a lot of upside. Now, what it also shows me, though, and this is going to allow me to transition from, both to, from the NBA, although I'll spend another minute or two on the NBA, to college football is, when are people going to stop overestimating probabilities. And what I mean by that is, let's take an example. If you had said four weeks ago, let's even just talk briefly about a big injury that happened in the NFL, that the Packers wouldn't make the playoffs after whatever they were, a 5-1 start, you'd say, well, how's that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. It's a guy by the name of Aaron Rodgers who was tackled on a play and broke his collarbone. And injuries by quarterbacks happen all the time. So if you ask me, you know, are the Golden State Warriors a 50% chance to make the playoffs? Yeah, uh, or to make the uh, NBA Finals. I'd say they're at least a 50% chance. If you tell me that Draymond Green, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry are healthy. But what are the odds of that? So this is what we call in statistics kind of, you have to, what I call, integrate over the set of possible outcomes, which means let's play. Let's even take the Warriors and those four players. Let's imagine each one of them can be injured or not. So there's 16 possible combinations. Think each player, yes, no, injured. There's two times two times two times two combinations, 16 possible combinations. We all agree if it's not injured, not injured, not injured, not injured, they have a 90%, 98% chance of making the playoffs, 100% chance of making the playoffs, and maybe a 50% chance of making the finals. But that's only one out of the 16 possible permutations. Why don't we consider the other 15 permutations where at least one of them is injured and then all of a sudden, how could you possibly say, let's imagine Kevin Durant got injured tomorrow and possibly out for an extended period of time. You're, I'll take the money. I'll take the rest of the league, the West, against the Golden State Warriors if one of Steph Curry or Kevin Durant is injured. And all I'm saying is there's a very significant probability of that happening. And so many, many people way, way, way overestimate the probabilities of various stuff happening. For example, a topic I want to transition at least briefly into is uh, the NCAA football. 
for example, I've seen the numbers right here that suggest that, you know, Alabama is, you know, at 80, 90 percent chance of making the football playoffs. Well, let's imagine, you know, their quarterback, Hurts, gets injured. Let's imagine all of a sudden their star running back gets injured. You know, all of a sudden, that 80, 90 percent chance, that has to go away. You can't imagine a star player for a team getting injured, and all of a sudden, the same probabilities associated with it. So I hope one of the takeaways people take from this first 15, 20 minutes here on Wharton Moneyball is, um, yeah, if everything goes great, it's easier to make statistical predictions. But you have to look at all the set of possible outcomes that could occur. And in this case, injuries are a huge proportion of the set of possible outcomes. Now, since I have about 10 minutes to the break, I and everyone has I hope everyone's been listening to our show for the last couple of weeks. Everybody knows during college football season, Bradlow me loves to talk about the doomsday scenarios. I love talking about doomsday scenarios in college football because I'm sort of infuriated by this four team playoff subjective we'll use our eye candy test to determine who's going to get in. I I really don't enjoy that at all. And so I there's lots of doomsday scenarios, but let me talk about a few of them. And again, if you want to call in with your not only doomsday scenario, but back to the topic I was just talking about, which one of them is possible and likely, let's again back to what are all possible combinations, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or you can email your question or comment to our producer Matt Datz at business radio at SiriusXM.com. So here's the here's my dream scenario that will I hope make them think about making a change in the NCAA. And by the way, uh, just a slight promotion for my colleague and co-host uh, Cade Massey. You can read a lot of this on Massey Peabody. Uh, they talk about all of these p- scenarios. And matter of fact, that is what Massey Peabody does. Besides giving point predictions, they also run simulations so that you can see probabilities of various combinations of outcomes. So again, I encourage all of our listeners here in Wharton Money Bowl to go to Massey Peabody and to listen and and to look at the content that was up there. Obviously, I looked at it to prepare for the show today. There's a huge game this Saturday in college football that will probably, I mean, I will say what obviously all of our listeners that know college football will know which game I'm talking about. Um, It's not an Ivy League game, which by the way, the Ivy League is over. Congratulations to Yale for winning Ivy League football this year. Congratulations to Penn, uh, my alma mater, for winning, I think, their last four games of the season to end up with a winning record, which exceeded expectations. So a great season for the Penn Quakers. But I'm talking about number one Alabama at number six Auburn. Now let's think about this game for a second. Let's imagine, I like to play out the doomsday scenario, but let's play the the non-doomsday scenario first. Alabama goes to Auburn. So Alabama at Auburn. Alabama wins the Iron Bowl. This is the Iron Bowl, Alabama at Auburn. Alabama wins the game. They win the SEC East, or West, sorry, West. They then play Georgia, who's already clinched the SEC East in the SEC championship game. Alabama beats Georgia. Now, why is that the good scenario for the NCAA committee? Well, we have an undefeated Alabama team. Um, Can we all on Wharton Moneyball agree that an undefeated Alabama team is going to the Final Four? I think we can all agree to that with 100% certainty, and they would be the number one seed, no problem. And they will have handed Georgia a second loss, so Georgia's probably out, and they will have handed Auburn. I think Auburn has two losses right now, uh, so it would hand Auburn their third loss, and therefore we agree Auburn and Georgia are out, Alabama's in, 
Maybe the world is happy, and then what else could happen? Well, we have Clemson and Miami playing each other for the ACC title. Um, At the moment, Clemson has one loss. Miami has zero losses. But I think we agree, if they're both undefeated, meaning they both win this week, and they're both undefeated next week going into the ACC championship game, they're not undefeated. Clemson would have one loss. Miami was zero. The winner of that game is, I mean, they're already in the top four right now. The winner of that game is going to the final four. So now we've got, under the best case scenario, we've got Alabama going to the final four. We've got the Clemson-Miami winner going to the final four. I would make the argument that if Wisconsin goes undefeated in the Big Ten, Wisconsin is probably going to go to the Final Four. Although, if you look at Massey Prebody, they're not predicted to beat Ohio State in the in the uh, Big e, the Big Ten championship game. Um, Oklahoma appears to have an inside track if they win the Big Twelve championship game. So, in this case, I want to say all is well in the world, but we'd have the SEC champ, the Big Twelve champ, the Big Ten champ the ACC champ. Yep, the Pac-12 champ would be left out, but you know what? It's not been a great year for the Pac-12. All of a sudden, the world is fine. And Bradlow's unhappy because the committee can say, look, the system worked for another year. Well, let's play the doomsday scenario out. Let's imagine Auburn, which is, by the way, only a minus four and a half point underdog. So it's not like they're 80-20 against them. It's about 65-35. Let's imagine, by the way, that means Alabama on a neutral field is about a seven, seven and a half point favorite, which if you look at Massey Peabody is about right. Auburn beats Alabama. So let's be clear, everybody. If Auburn beats Alabama, Alabama does not, does not go to the SEC championship game. Auburn goes to the SEC championship game. Auburn then plays Georgia in the SEC championship game. So that means to me, One of Auburn or Georgia, the winner of that game, is probably going to go to the Final Four. But what do you do with Alabama, who's the consensus number one, who's only lost one game? Well, don't they still have to go to the Final Four? Are they really going to slip from number one? I mean, yeah, if they get beaten by Auburn 60-0, to maybe they'll slip out of the top four. But they're in the top four. So Alabama's now in the top four. So now you have two SEC teams in the top four. And as, as pointed out, thanks, Matt, Auburn already beat Georgia 40-17. to 17. But that's why everyone is saying if Auburn beats Alabama this week and then beats Georgia again, I mean, they'll have beaten Georgia twice. They'll have beaten Alabama. Come on. Auburn is going. Auburn, with two losses, is going to the Final Four. So, by the way, that will be controversial in itself. But could you imagine taking a two-loss Auburn team over a, let's say, a zero-loss Wisconsin team? How'd you like that? How would our listeners on Wharton Moneyball like that? A two-loss SEC team goes out of an undefeated, potentially undefeated, Big Ten champ. How'd you like that? So, that could be a doomsday scenario because, again, if two SEC, two SEC teams make it, and we think we just agreed, it's highly likely the Clemson-Miami winner's going. That's three. What that means is either Oklahoma or Wisconsin goes, not both. So the Pac-12's not happy. USC is the highest-ranked team there at 11 right now. There's no Pac-12 team, no Big 12 team, two SEC teams. Neither of those SEC teams, let's be clear, Neither of those SEC teams would be undefeated. So we'd have two teams from the SEC, both with losses. We'd have a Clemson-Miami, where let's imagine Clemson wins that game. Clemson's not undefeated. 
they're going to the they're going to the final four. So I love all of these doomsday scenarios. I really do. I can't tell you as a doomsday fan, which I am here on Wharton Moneyball. I I mean. I'm going to be watching that Auburn-Alabama game. And again, I have no relatives. Actually, that's not true. One of my relatives, my first cousin's or my second cousin's wife went to Alabama, so maybe I would root for Alabama from that point of view. I'm rooting for Auburn. There are playing out all the decision trees and possibilities. Auburn beating Alabama leads to a lot more confusion and chaos. And as a statistician, I'm interested in how thoughtful it's not like the committee's not thoughtful how thoughtful human beings sort out what i would call a statistical mess because it's not obvious how to rank order and this is a thing statisticians do all the time we and people do all the time we have to rank order let me say the following i think everyone agrees there will be a rank order from this committee we don't have to like it but there will be one and so they're going to have to decide potentially especially if auburn beats alabama and let's say miami beats clemson which i'm oh, sorry clemson beats miami which by the way are the favorite not auburn winning is not the favorite but if auburn wins and clemson wins there will be essentially, unless you want UCF in there, there will be no undefeated teams. Now, maybe Wisconsin, and let's say Wisconsin gets beaten by Ohio State. We've got a two-loss Ohio State team, no undefeated teams except for a non-Power 5 team, and now you have to select between maybe seven or eight one-loss teams. You, I mean, how are you going to do that? I mean, let me just say, by the way, this is the argument, and I said this last week on Wharton Moneyball. Cade and I were having a discussion about this. You have to then go to advanced analytics. You must. You have to. You have to look at something called either the ELO rating, which is kind of a pairwise comparison rating between teams. I'd be happy if you go to the ESPN uh, Football Power Index. I'd be happy if you go to Bassey Peabody. But at the end of the day, if you know, if you have all these intransitivities, and what I mean is, it would be fine if, you know, well, Alabama beat this team, and Alabama beat this team, and Alabama beat this team, they beat all the teams, but think of the circularity. Alabama will have lost to Auburn. Auburn will will have beaten Georgia, but they'll have lost to Clemson and LSU. You'll end up with this circular pattern, A beat B, B beat C, C beat A. So there's no what we call condor say winner or dominant winner. There's no, like, everybody defeats all the alternative pairwise. If anything, it might be Clemson, you could argue, because Clemson's loss was to lowly Syracuse. At least they didn't lose to one of the other top teams. So you could argue from a dominant point of view Clemson is the one that kind of at least beat all the other top teams that it did. So um, for all you uh, confusion fans out there, for all of you that want people to go to advanced analytics fans out there like me, um, we're all hoping for an Auburn over Alabama win. So this has been the first half hour of Wharton Moneyball. We've talked about the NBA. We've talked about the NCAA football. We've talked about streaks, how real is a 16-game winning streak. Uh, As we found out, there are 22 of them or longer in the NBA. We've talked about all kinds of fun stuff, including the quadruple double, which is I hope Joel Embiid gets one. I hope he gets one tonight, and it's extraordinarily more rare. We've talked about doomsday scenario, but that's just one quarter of the show. We have Chase Stewart coming up in the next half hour. We have Tom Haberstroh coming up in the the 9 o'clock hour, and then, of course, I'll be talking about all NFL all the time in the last half hour. So stay with us and join us after the break.
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here on the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for that music that gets me just, you know, we could just leave that music on and it'll get us into the sports mood. But, of course, we got a lot more sports, statistics, and business to talk about. But thanks, Danielle, for the exciting music this morning. So we're very fortunate. I mean, matter of fact, one of the great parts of Wharton Moneyball, uh, besides talking to you, the fans, which we can do, which you can do by calling in at one eight four four Wharton, which is one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. One of the great parts of our show, besides talking to the fans live, is having guests on the show. Um, it keeps us up to date on sports. It keeps us uh, attuned to what's going on in analytics. And we're very fortunate to have a returning guest to the show, Chase Stewart. Chase is the owner of Football Perspective He's been a contributor in the past for ProFootballReference.com and 538. So, Chase, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. How are you this morning? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me on again. Happy early Thanksgiving to you. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. And, of course, we'll get to in a second why many of us love Thanksgiving besides the food is the football on Thanksgiving. So we'll we'll talk a lot about that in just a second. But we always like to start out, I mean, maybe there were some listeners that weren't here on the show when you were on last. Could you just tell us about footballperspective.com, kind of how you got started with it? And, you know, since we're a business school, this is the Wharton School, I always like to know, how do you make money at footballperspective.com? What's the business model? But how did it get started? And how do you, you know, what's the business model? That That's a great question. You probably should have somebody smarter on than me to discuss that because, you know, I'm not doing it to, to raise a lot of money. I think the, the key to be success, being successful in any industry, but particularly in this one, is being passionate about what you're doing and to to be real. So I think the I've been fortunate enough over the years to be able to write for a number of great websites, and I think my passion for the game has come through and that people like that and that I'm genuine about what I'm doing. Being a curious, interesting person who is trying to find the right answer rather than argue for the sake of arguing is, is something I'd recommend to everybody. So when you're when you're a football fan, if you're trying to be successful in this industry, do your homework, study as much as you can, try to read as many good writers as you can. And if you're really interested in learning about the game and, and watching it and it just it drives you, that'll shine through and people will, will absolutely want to follow you and interact with you and at the end of the day, it's it's a fun thing to do, and this is what we're all football fans at heart. And so the the more you get into it, the more people will want to get into it with you. So how do you make the transition from, you know, I think people know, obviously I'm sitting here on the radio here on Sirius XM 111. Um, everybody knows I'm a huge football fan. I'm wearing Sixers gear today because I'm going to the game tonight. But either way, I'm a huge football fan. How do you make the transition from football fan to kind of doing analytics around football because, you know, lots of people listening to our show are football fans. It doesn't mean they're doing the, let's call it the analytics of the sport. How did you get into that? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I started at a different time back in the early 2000s when fantasy football was sort of a, a nascent industry and I was able to work with footballguys.com, great fantasy football service that I still work with where really smart people there were analyzing the game from a statistical perspective, because that's what fantasy football is, right? So if you are playing fantasy football and want to be giving advice to potential subscribers and say, here's who you draft, here's how you be good at fantasy football, well, you need to be able to predict the future. And the way you do that is to study the game, understanding how, how different statistics work. And fantasy football is a great way, in my opinion, to, to get into the analytics game because 
involves checking a lot of your biases, you have the ability to basically measure what you're thinking every week. So if you say, I'm thinking a, a team with this sort of defense is always going to play well, well, you're going to find out every week how they actually do. And you see that things like touchdowns are less predictive or, or less repeatable than yards, so they're easier to predict yards in the game than touchdowns. And you find that offenses are easier to predict than defenses. And over time, if you keep testing hypotheses, you're going to get answers. And so fantasy football is a great way to get your predictions on paper, see the results, and learn. And then you can also run you know, historical studies. There's so much data out there now. You know, When, when I was starting, it was not the, the vast ocean of numbers and publicly available information that makes it easy to run your own experiments. So obviously, if you have some math background, that's helpful. If you know how to you know, perform a regression analysis, that's great. If you can figure out how to actually decipher and, and filter the, the statistics to get what you want. But you know what? Just starting and then publishing your research, usually a smart person will show you if you're doing it wrong, and then you learn. So I, I think being open to, to criticism and feedback is a huge part of being successful in this industry. And again, I started in fantasy football. I was able to, to sort of narrow my focus and become uh, more successful at it and had people guide me along the way. And, and eventually my writing was picked up by other places and uh, that, that led to more and more opportunities. Before we dump into uh, jump into the specifics of the NFL, I just want to give you, and, and please take this, and I'm sure you will, as the highest form of compliment. And, and it leads to a question. How did you become what I would consider a real scientist? Let me say why I mean it that way, with the highest form of compliment. Here are the words you just used, Chase, which I'll repeat back to our fans. Use the word predictions, data, historical studies, test hypotheses, run experiments, use regression, criticism and feedback. You understand, that's what we in academics do. We develop hypotheses. We look for appropriate data and historical studies. We build predictive models. We run hypothetical counterfactuals and experiments. Sometimes, most of the time, maybe using regression. You could use fancier machine learning methods. We submit stuff. We get criticism and feedback. We learn. We get better. How Can you just, I mean, I want to jump into the actual NFL of the day, but what you just said, you speak like an academic. What, what's your background that kind of <laughs> has led you to this idea of hypothesis testing and developing theories, and then the data will refute them or not? Well, it's it's funny you say that, so because I think that I have been influenced by some academics, and that's probably a good thing. For starters, that there are a lot of people who are either current or, or former teachers or professors in this industry. I was lucky in the you know early two thousands working with Doug Drennan at Football Guys, and also he's the the founder of ProFootballReference dot com. We connected pretty early on. Doug is a math professor, and so he when you know he's he's a few years older than me. When I was a young guy, he was already an established math professor, and he really mentored me and showed me how to, to think about things from a, the perspective of exactly what you're saying. So I, I actually did work hands-on with a math professor to understanding the game and, and running those tests because anybody can just you know have some opinion about football, but I think what separates uh, an analyst who's really being honest and trying to learn about the game, and that's why I talked about the curiosity from earlier, is somebody who is going to run a test, come up with a hypothesis and say, if you think, well, you know, I watch this team every week and they always blow this lead. Well, you can test that. That's a hypothesis. Do they do they blow leads more than the average team? How often do they blow leads? And, the, and those are the sorts of questions that once you drill in, you really learn a lot. And so I, I think thinking like a professor, working with people who are, have that sort of mindset, um, the, this industry seems to have a lot of lawyers and professors in it. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I think that ability to craft an argument, to think critically about it, is a is really the best way to learn. And you know, it's, you, you don't necessarily think of football as, hey, I need to learn like a professor or a lawyer. But I think they're. Uh, the analytical arguments are, are shaped in a similar way. So this is Eric Bradlow. We're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School here on Wharton Moneyball. If you want to join the conversation with Chase Stewart, Chase is the owner of, Pro, of footballperspective.com. You can join us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So Chase, let's now dive into the specifics of the NFL. Um, one of the things that has obviously caught everyone's eye is kind of this enormous talent that exists in the second-year quarterback class. You know, we're sitting here in Philadelphia. You know, we're, you know, everyone's on the Wentz wagon, so we've got Carson Wentz here in Philadelphia. Obviously, what Dak Prescott has done in Dallas is not only last year, but look, he's running for his life this year. He doesn't have the horses he had last year. Obviously, with Zeke out, but also, you know, the offensive line's not as well. Of course, all of a sudden, Jared Goff has emerged as someone that's remarkable. Um, How do you think about these three second-year quarterbacks? Do you have a preference among them? Yeah, it's a great question, and they have really been very different. Uh, I think certainly Prescott has been the the most consistent quarterback since the end of the league because he was great last year, and he has not. He's been the worst of the three, at least statistically this year, and I think probably most would say, just watching film, he's probably been the least effective of the three. And but but he he is, I think when his talent is around him, when he's got the, the full supporting cast, then. Prescott can be a really, really good quarterback, maybe a, a top-five quarterback in the league. He, he was outstanding last year. So he, he's he got his own style. Jared Goff has been fascinating. I mean, th- this is a guy who was Ryan Leaf bad last year. I, I wrote a few articles about it, and, and I don't feel bad about writing them because they were true at the well, time. Well, that's the data. The data was he was Ryan Leaf bad. You're not saying he was going to be that forever. You're just stating an empirical fact. Exactly. I mean, he was really, really bad last year, and it was it was shocking because it, it, he he took he was sacked on over eleven percent of his dropbacks, which is a, an insanely high number. I think his completion percentage was terrible. He threw more interceptions than touchdowns. Even when he did complete passes, they were really short passes. I mean, he did basically everything that you would think a bad quarterback would do. Is what Jared Goff did. And if you're interested, he also went zero and seven. So he, he was a, a, just a terrible rookie quarterback and now he's turned into one of the best quarterbacks in the league i had run some numbers a few weeks ago talking about the biggest improvement from one year to the next by any quarterback in nfl history and goff is is still on pace to to make that mark he would he would be right now the biggest increase and the statistic i use is adjusted net yards per attempt uh john brody the San Francisco I remember. Well, I don't remember John Brody, but I know. I mean, I'm, I'm, as everybody on the show knows, I'm a historian of all sports. I certainly know of John Brody. Exactly. Yeah. I and mean, he was a great quarterback. He was an MVP. But you know, his 1960 to 1961, he had an enormous leap. That's and, and as an Eagles fan, you'll appreciate this. The second biggest jump of all time was Nick Foles from 2012 to 2013. So, and are you going to talk about the, the biggest fall of all time from Nick Foles from after <laughs> that? But, you know, as they rise, they fall. But let me ask you a related question to this, Chase. How much of this, I mean, do we agree? It's not like all of a sudden um, Jared Goff came into his physical self and like between age 22 and 23 or whatever he is, like all of a sudden he's body matured. 
Is it the coaching? Is that what it is? I mean, it, 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 what do you attribute when you see statistical changes of the magnitude you're talking about as someone that is a scientist that likes to develop hypotheses? Do you have another theory besides it's the coaching stupid or is it something else? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. I think that's the, that's the obvious answer, right? That's the, that's the, the first thing everybody would jump to. And you also look at somebody like Case Keenum, who's had a really good year. He was Goff's teammate last year. He also was pretty bad last year. So both of those quarterbacks moving outside of the shadow of Jeff Fisher have been much more successful in 2017. By the way, that's, so that's we, what we call uh, moving out of the shadow of Jeff Fisher is what we call a theorem here on Morton Moneyball. The, mo- <laughs> the minute you do that, you all of a sudden improve. Yeah, and so... Uh, you know, uh, the, the Rams did make some acquisitions this year that have made the offense better. They did sign Andrew Whitworth. They did trade for Sammy Watkins. They added Robert Woods. So they have improved the talent. And Goff has also, you know, he, he may have matured. Who knows what was going on with him, either mentally or physically, last year? I mean, no, nobody necessarily knows what somebody is dealing with and he, or what somebody's doing to be much better. So he, he may have had some changes to his physical or mental approach that it has made all the difference. But sure, I mean, there's no question that when you've got a much more effective coaching staff, it's going to make a huge difference. When you go from the worst quarterback in the league to one of the best, when you make the single biggest improvement any quarterback has ever made year over year in NFL history, there's going to be many, many reasons for that. So, look, lots of, lots of quarterbacks have gone – and so, so in general, I absolutely agree. Coaching is, it has to be the number one answer. But I would just, as an aside note, that lots of quarterbacks have gone from a bad offensive coach to a good offensive coach and not made nearly the jump that Goff has made. So that there's probably a few other factors at play as well. So if you just quickly, because I want to move to a second topic in the NFL, but quickly, if you had to pick between Wentz, Prescott, and Goff based on their statistics, how do you see them? I think for this year, I would go with, Wentz, I think if I had to pick for the next five years, it would be close. Uh, I would probably, though, still pick Prescott, but maybe in a couple weeks, if, if Wentz keeps that up, I may switch that answer. And what's also interesting, of course, is I'm also a, I won't go through the details, also a Buccaneers fan. I could easily ask you, as a matter of fact, maybe 30 seconds on this, um, let's compare them to the quarterbacks from the prior year. How do you compare them to Winston or Mariota? Yeah, and then and, and it's a great question because I think this time last year everybody would have said Winston was that guy, and he's correct. You know, really had a, a, a significant regression, not necessarily as much statistically, but just the, his his style of play, the the feelings around him. I mean, he, he's been he was two he's two and six this year, so he's been very unsuccessful. And Mariota sort of failed to live up to some of that as well. So right now, yeah, it's a surprise because they, they were so great, and, and Mariota especially now, and his TD interception ratio is underwater, which is unusual for him. So I think Wentz has passed him, and, and Prescott probably has too, but that just shows you the, the fluid nature of today's game, that six weeks from now that could change again. Well, Chase, you've just given me the perfect softball, as they say, to make a transition to the next topic. You talked about the fluid nature of the game. Um, we have a very interesting thing that at the moment that has never happened in the NFL. The season's not over. The Eagles, Rams, Vikings, and Saints in the NFC, they're all leading their division, and none of them made the playoffs last year. None of them. Eagles, Rams, Vikings, and Saints. How do you explain the 
well, I'll use the statistical term, high variance. I'll use your term, fluidity. How does this happen in the NFL, where teams go from you know six and ten, or in the Rams' case, even worse? How do they go from that to a playoff team? Why is there so much variance? By the way, if I told you in the NBA the Warriors, the Rockets, etc., weren't going to make, you'd say that's crazy. How is that going to happen? Why is the NFL so different in that way? Yeah, so I, I want to let you know that I am a Jets fan, and I don't believe there is any variance in the NFL year to year. And it, we're just stuck in this perpetual cycle of, of mediocrity. So it, it's it's an interesting question. I think that there are a few things at play. One, that the talent level in the NFL is compressed. And when you've got large rosters, 22 players on the field, 53 men on a roster, no one player makes the difference that they do in, in the NBA. And having such a it's a really it's truly a team sport the cliche is, is correct and so when you think about that that means there's going to be when when rosters turn over when there are drafts that that impact it there's going to be a, a significant change year to year in, in success and that's because you you've, you're not going to have one guy that makes the team great on the other hand there is still the, the value of a quarterback and the value of a quarterback not being there so when you talk about the nfc north if aaron Rodgers was healthy would Minnesota be in first place? It's tough to say. We don't really know that to, to be the case. Uh, so I think each each individual division has its own story. What the Saints are doing is fascinating. I mean, this is a team that was horrible on defense for so long, and they've they've consistently invested in the defense over the last few years, seemingly with no results. But this year, whatever for whatever reason, it's all come together. They have added Alvin Kamara who's made an enormous impact on, on offense, and Drew Brees is still great. So it's not shocking that the offense has been really good, which it is. The offense is great. I think, if anything, the offense is being underrated. Right now, the Saints actually lead the NFL in both yards per pass and yards per carry this year. But the defense has been incredible, and, and that's something nobody saw coming. I would say the the success of the Saints' defense is as shocking as the success of the Rams' offense. I'm going to have to look at the last – maybe you know the answer, Chase. When's the last time a team has led the league in both yards per pass and yards per carry? I mean, maybe it was the greatest show on turf? I mean, when is – I was going to say, it's it's been a while. I have looked at that. It's been a while. I I am pretty sure one of those Rams teams did do it. Maybe it was the 2001 team, but it it is unusual. And um, I just thought the Rams were first in in passing and second in yards per attempt in 2000. So it, it is something that doesn't happen too often. And that's uh, they they were first and first in 2001. So there you go. But it's very rare. You have a, a but again, the Saints are just a really strong offense combined with a defense that's been outstanding. So that is a, is a surprise to me, and it just shows you that every year NFL teams are different. You've got 11 players on defense, switching coordinators, switching a few players can make you know a significant difference, and that's what you're seeing in the NFC South. The Rams are, are a team that. They're seven and three. Nobody expected this offense to be this good. You know, another unsung hero for for Los Angeles would be Wade Phillips, right? So this Absolutely. is a guy who has been tremendous as a defensive coordinator, basically everywhere he's been, and he's helping LA be you know the best team in the NFC West. Conversely, uh, we talk about why the NFL is the, the results may be compressed or there's a significant variance year over year. Injuries are are significantly more impactful in the NFL than in other sports. And so, or at least in my understanding, I'm not a, uh, an expert in any other sports than maybe the NFL. So the Seahawks are a team that at full strength, they may be the best in the league. Yep. 
they are nowhere near full strength this year. And that, that is a big reason why. You think with Sherman and Chancellor out, they've been affected by injury? I say that jokingly, of course. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, that, that is a, a significant impact to a team that couldn't really afford that. So you look at Seattle, and this, is a, this could be, at full strength, a Super Bowl team, but they're nowhere near that now, and, and they've turned into Russell Wilson and, and whoever. So, but the Eagles are, are <clears throat> to, to complete our look at the NFC, this, this was an Eagles team last year that was pretty good, and, and people didn't necessarily realize that because they were really bad in close games, and they had a lot of close losses, and that happens sometimes. But most advanced statistics thought Philadelphia was a really good team last year. They absolutely should have been a playoff team last year based on how they played. They, were, they ranked fifth in football outsiders' main statistic. They just happened to lose a lot of close games. They were much better than their record. So, so to and you, they're so, – Yeah, so to you, they're – I know you're an Eagles fan, but you consider – this is a team that was pretty good last year, and that was when Carson Wentz wasn't that good. Make Carson Wentz really good, and now they're a great team. Well, Chase, I want to thank you for joining us here on Sirius XM Business Radio, Wharton, uh, Wharton Moneyball. Uh, this has been, I could talk to you for days and days and days. Uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show uh, as we get closer to the playoffs. Uh, but thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks for having me on. So well, we've been talking to Chase Stewart, the owner of FootballPerspective.com. He's been a contributor in the past to ProFootballReference.com and 538. Uh, this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball, as you can see. It's been great. We've been talking. We talked the NBA, NCAA, NFL. We have Tom Haberstroh joining us right after the break. We're going to talk more about the NBA. So please join us after the break here on Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, one of the four permanent hosts of Wharton Moneyball since we started a little over three years ago. And a good shout out to my colleagues, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner, who are not here today, but some combination of us is here every week talking about the world of sports and statistics and business, 8 to 10 a.m. live Eastern here on Sirius XM 111. Business radio powered by the Wharton School. And of course, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. Or you can call us or you can email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, as I mentioned in the first hour of the show, one of the great honors of being here at Wharton Moneyball is to have guests on the show. Um, as I mentioned, we were going to have Tom Haberstroh on the show. Uh, Tom is someone I've seen numerous, numerous times on ESPN, read a lot of his work. Uh, Tom is part of Spotlight Media Ventures, and it's leveraged the Chat Media Network. He's part of the Basketball Friends podcast. Um, he also serves as a at- writer at large for Bleacher Report Mag. So, Tom, uh, welcome to the show. This is Eric Bradlow. Hey, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's it's really an honor to have you on. Um, there's so many things I want to get to, but one of the things we always try to do when we have a first-time, I'll call it famous guest on the show, is how did you get into analytics? How, how did you get started? I mean, you know, we all, you know, I'm assuming maybe as a child you loved sports, but how do you love sports and love analytics, and how did you get started? Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to give you the cliff notes here. Um, I actually got inspired by the book Moneyball when I was in college uh, reading it and high school and reading it. Um, And then when I got to college at Wake Forest University, I wanted to go to the fast track for iBanking. I wanted to be a banker or um, financial advisor. And when I graduated in 2008 from Wake, 
with an economics degree. I interviewed must have been 20 different places uh, for a business gig, a business gig at Wachovia, Bank of America, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and in New York. I didn't get anything. There was uh, no jobs to be had because of the market crash um, and the recession was hitting. All of the parts that I wanted to do were uh, basically all those departments were being uh, closed up shop. So I, I was forced to change direction in my career, and I threw in my resume at ESPN and the stats and analysis division, uh, which really just fact-checked all the numbers that you see on ESPN.com, all the numbers you see on the TV, all the box scores that come in from the schools from around the country, D1, D2, even D3. Uh, they had to be fact-checked. And so I, ca- I called myself a professional bean counter uh, for my first couple of years out of college because my job at ESPN was to verify all the information um, Tim Duncan had eight rebounds in the game. Does that reflect it on the ESPN site? Um, and I basically inputted live data. So I'd watch college football games, college basketball games. And, you know, number 11 passed to number 82 for 17 yards. That was my first job in sports. Uh, I made $12 an hour. And it was, the, it was a dream job for me. It was right out of school. Even though I wasn't making the money that a lot of my friends were right out of college, uh, I knew that this was the foot in the door for potentially something really cool. And it turned out, yeah, uh, I started writing about a couple years later about uh, statistics, uh, next-level statistics, they called it, at ESPN. I just caught in at the front end of the wave and got really, really lucky. Um, and so I, there was just kind of uncharted territory in the NBA world. I was in sabermetrics. I, I knew baseball uh, analytics. Um, I read all the, the blogs, um, Hardball Times, Fan Graphs. Uh, Tom Tango was like a huge inspiration for me. And uh, eventually I just said, you know what? I played basketball in high school. I love college hoops and the NBA. Why don't I just do this for the NBA? And that's how my career really took off. You know, the thing I love about your story, Tom, uh, is that it's a similar story to many of us, which is um, at least, you know, I'm 15 years older than you, but uh, uh, let's think about the following. There was no, when I graduated, there was, I mean, quantitative people didn't, I mean, they went into things like investment banking and consulting and that that's what there was. And so your story, I'm sure is similar to many of our listeners here on Morton Moneyball. You're a quantitative person. You have a degree in economics from a great institution. There's got to be a thousand different industries that would want your skills and analytics and sports just happens to be one of them. Yeah, and you know when I tell people coming up, how do you get where I am? Uh, there is really no recipe. There is no blueprint. There is no playbook um, to replicate it. Just because the right place, right time, with uh, you know the market crash. If the market was fine and the eco- uh, the economy was great, maybe I would have gotten a job at Wachovia now, Wells Fargo in Charlotte, and I would have had a totally different career. But it just you know the serendipity of it all led me into this NBA analytics world where. Um, you know, I never took a journalism class. I never took like a high level English course at Wake Forest. It was all about data analysis and econometrics. And that really paved the way for a lot of the competitive advantage that I have in my job. A lot of my job is just working in Excel spreadsheets and running formulas and creating charts and spotting trends and running regressions, uh, which is something that a lot of people would rather shoot themselves than do. So I um, I kind of use that as my little my weapon um, in this in this industry where it's going to take a lot of data analysis, a lot of copying and pasting and data mining and yep. cleaning up the data. A lot of people don't like doing that, and um, that I guess is my competitive advantage is that I'm willing to do that. I know how to do it, 
and it helps me find stories um, and and really tell stories that takes a little bit of digging to get to, and I really pride myself on it. Well, by the way, Tom, that's why you're on the perfect show here, Wharton Moneyball, because everything you've just mentioned is why our show exists. So it's glad that it's really great to have you on the show. Let me ask you a question. How have you seen, since you've now been in the NBA roughly, you know, let's call it eight to ten years, how have you seen analytics change in that time period? Like, where have we gone from, as you pointed out, you kind of got in on the ground floor, caught the early part of the wave. Well, now the wave has been flooding the waters for 10 years, roughly. How have you seen things change over that time period? Oh, it's it's uh, night and day. I mean, when I got into the, the game, there was no such thing as plus minus in the box score. There was no such – it wasn't a – um, it wasn't commonplace the, to talk about plus minus. Hey, uh, Steph Curry is uh, you know plus twenty three in tonight's game. That just wasn't even part of the NBA vernacular. Um, and now it's just ubiquitous. You, you see on court, off court ratings. You see um, when this guy is playing with that guy, uh, they're a hundred and ten points per one hundred possessions. But when they're subbing in the backup their offense suffers and declines to 102 points per 100 possessions. The whole per 100 possessions thing wasn't even a thing. It wasn't even like I, now if you turn on a broadcast, Marv Albert or your, your average play-by-play guy will probably cite uh, an um, an analytics uh, number. So like a plus minus or his scoring rate per 36 minutes, that just wasn't, um, part of the conversation when I got into this about in 2010, I want to say John Hollinger was King. There was only one John Hollinger out there in terms of a, a sports writer with a gift at using numbers. Uh, it just wasn't a, um, a part of the conversation. And then in 2011, I got a job to be an, at the heat index covering LeBron James in Miami with Kevin Arnovitz and Brian Winhurst and Michael Wallace and I was really nervous because it was the first time anyone had been hired with an analytic slant to cover a team in the locker room and ask questions based on the numbers. So Eric Spolstra, when you have this five-man lineup on the floor, you guys really struggle to, to rack up assists. Why is that? And he'd kind of look at me like, who are you? <laughs> like, where is this information coming from? This is radical. This is something totally different. I've never had someone ask me questions about um, five-man lineups or what a, a team does with a certain configuration on the on the floor. And th- that was just kind of new. Uh, Synergy Sports was this data analytics company that reviewed film and created numbers off of that film, pick-and-roll data. All this stuff was new back in 2011. Now it's just commonplace. Um, so uh, another big area of it, innovation is just health analytics. Um, DNP rests were... Uh, coaches are resting players, giving them nights off because they might be more predisposed to injury if they play on those back-to-backs. That stuff wasn't happening eight years ago, and I think a lot of that has been informed by analytics um, of a different kind, which is health analytics, is looking at the data to see what kind of risk profile there is for these athletes if they play when their gas is empty. Um, And a lot of these guys, this wasn't even part of the conversation for them, um, is, is whether I should rest 
in order to maximize my performance and limit my risk uh, for injury. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric (coughs) Eric Bradlow. We're talking to Tom Haberstroh. Tom is part of Spotlight Media Ventures, and it's leveraged the chat media network where he's part of the Basketball Friends podcast. So, Tom, let me make a nice transition. You just talked about health analytics. Let me make a nice transition to an article you just wrote about Kyrie Irving and his diet and kind of, if you like, that's part of health. Could you talk about both the article and kind of the role of conditioning and what you've observed analytically about the pace of play in the NBA today? Yeah, so um, this story was really about how players are trying to find a competitive advantage or an edge to beat out their players beyond just working on shooting a thousand jumpers a day or running sprints. You know, they want they want more information. They want better information. And one of the um, one of the ways they're trying to get an edge is through their nutrition and their diet. Um, so the NBA is getting so fast, and you have to be so fit now to compete at the highest level in the NBA where the league is slimming down. You know, there's a lot of talk about small ball, but really the Harvard Sports Analytics Group uh, made a post a couple weeks ago. They did a study that found that uh, the league isn't getting shorter in terms of being small ball. They're getting slimmer. They're losing weight um, about four pounds per person on average uh, when you look at the last few years, great dropped. point. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. Keep going. This is I'm I'm fascinated about this. This is great. So they so the fastest team in the NBA in 1997 would be the slowest team in 28 in this season. So they're slimming down. They're actually getting faster. Um, and so you have to be fit. You have to be your body fat percentage has to be a certain way, or else you can't compete. It's about survival in the NBA. So Kyrie Irving actually looked this summer at his life, at his nutrition, and decided to drop meat, um, stop eating uh, animals, and decided maybe I'll get more energy. And in the late-game situations, he's been on fire. So there is this connection in the NBA between, okay, what can I eat to make myself better basketball, less w- lose weight, and be a better basketball player for 2017 because that's what's going to cut it at this age um, in, the, in the sport. So Kyrie Irving right now – is scoring something like 65 points in clutch scenarios. Last five minutes, game within five, clutch scenarios. He scored something like 64 points in 30 minutes of action. It's not even three quarters of basketball, and he scored about 60 points in these scenarios. It's insane. And, uh, and he believes, I talked to him last week, he believes that a lot of it has to do with his diet, that he had, just has more energy out there. And when all these guys are gassed late games, He's pushing on the the gas pedal, and they're absolutely getting trounced by Kyrie Irving. Let me make a transition from health, but it relates to the same topic, and eventually we'll get towards the specific teams. But what about the role of age, then? If this is becoming a faster league, do older teams have no shot? Obviously, I'm sitting here thinking, and you may be thinking, Eric's thinking about the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, can old teams win in the NBA now? You know, can the days of where, you know, the 28, 29-year-old Larry Bird and McHale and Parrish, you know, they're, they're good, but they're slow and old. Can slow and old work, or does, or does your theory also relate to age? Well, it's a great point because one of the things that you can't do when you're old and cranky is run back and transition. That's really hard to do is to – turn around after you miss a layup, and then sprint back on the floor. And right now, the Cleveland Cavaliers are the oldest team in the NBA. The average age is 31.1 years 
old and they have the worst defense in the league. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a coincidence that the oldest team is also the worst defense. So it's not a hard and fast rule that the younger teams are going to be playing better defense because they get back in transition and they hustle more because the Phoenix Suns right now have the second worst defense uh, and they're basically the youngest team in the league. So it's not a hard, fast rule that age and defensive rating or just basically your, your ability to score the basketball and defend is dictated totally by your age because you do need some veterans out there to, to bring some smarts, but there certainly is a connection between the Cleveland Cavaliers and their ability to play defense because right now they're just doing a horrible job at putting in the effort, the rotations. And I think a little bit of this has to do with the fact that they've been run down. I mean, three straight finals appearances by that team, and LeBron's got seven straight. I think at this point they might just be a little tired and also trying to preserve their energy for the stretch run. I think they know that, you know, despite their regular season record last year, they did just fine. They went 12-1 and getting to the finals and beat their Eastern Conference foes. So I think a little bit of this is why burn all this energy now? It's November. We still got to perform at a high level in May. Why don't we save up that energy rather than exhausting it right out the gate? So I think a lot of it has to do with the age, but I think a lot of a lot of it has to do with energy preservation. I'm sure our, our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, we're talking to Tom Haberstroh. Tom is part of Spotlight Media Ventures, and it's leveraged the Chat Media Network, where he's part of the Basketball Friends podcast. How would you see, let's continue on since we've been talking about Cleveland and the East, how much do you think Isaiah Thomas's return, when he returns, or saying January, um, will affect them? I'm predicting that you may not say he's going to improve their defense a lot. Um, and how do you think, do you think, the Celtics will top the Cavs in the East. How do you see the Eastern Conference playing out? Yeah, it's really tough to project right now because we just don't have a lot of information to go on. Um, I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I got a chance to see Isaiah Thomas um, working out before the game when the Cavs came into town. Um, he wasn't doing so much five-on-five or three-on-three work. He wasn't doing basketball drills. He was really doing some sprints. Um, but what I need to see from Isaiah Thomas to really get a gauge of how well he's going to do when he gets back or when he's going to get back is when he's doing those actual three-on-three, five-on-five drills where he moves left and right on that hip because that's when it's going to really matter is moving laterally uh, at full speed. You know, you can do all the up-and-down vertical sprints you want, but until you start moving laterally and playing dynamic uh, basketball, it's really hard to gauge how healthy that hip is. Um, I looked into the data of, of guys who have these type of hip injuries and go under under the knife and go for surgery, and it could knock him out for 6 to 18 months if he under, undergoes surgery. We're not at that point yet, but um, I think they're going to try to get him back, but that's not going to help the defense. You know, last year, uh, Isaiah Thomas was one of the worst defending point guards in the NBA, um, and, and it's just hard to be a top-flight defender when you're that short because the game is dictated by hype. So I don't think that Isaiah Thomas can really help them defensively. And Derrick Rose is a horrible defender as well. And a lot of people think that point guard defense doesn't really matter in the NBA, but it does when it comes to effort level in the pick and roll. If your point guard isn't fighting through screens, that makes things so much easier for the opposing point guard to get space and to find areas to get into the teeth of the defense. And if the point guard isn't giving any effort, that's just a lot of breakdowns waiting to happen. So Isaiah Thomas is going to help put the basketball in the basket, and that might be easier on the defense is that they can get set when the ball is going through the hoop and the other team has to pull it from the uh, pull it out of the basket. That can help slow things down rather than getting turnovers and, and, and missing shots. 
that kind of helps the opposing offense. But at this point, I don't think Isaiah Thomas is going to cure their issues. I don't. I don't think so. Maybe it gives LeBron a little bit of extra rest here, and maybe he can give a little bit more effort defensively. But ultimately, I think Isaiah Thomas is the the last thing the the Cavaliers need. They need a rim protector, and right now Tristan Thompson isn't healthy enough to do that, and he might not have the energy to do that anytime soon. So it's a huge question mark. I'm actually picking the field when it comes to um, the Eastern Conference Finals. I'd rather take Boston or Milwaukee or Washington – over the Cavs, which I don't think people would have said a couple months ago. They would have said the Cavs are going to be penciled into the finals. Actually, I'm going to take the field. I'd rather see um, anybody other than the Cavs uh, just because I don't really think that their defense is that that good this year. It has to get to about average. I don't see a roadmap for that. Let me ask you two related questions. What about the theory of, and, and maybe you've looked at this analytically, um, why can't the Cavs just outscore people? You know, give up 115. Why can't it be the old Loyola Marymount of the NBA? You know, give up 115, score 120. Isn't it point differential that matters? If they're a plus five right now, as I talked about in the first half hour of the show, they keep, Cleveland's actually at plus zero. They basically have given up as many points as they've scored. But why can't they just say, we'll get Isaiah Thomas back? Sure, we'll give up 115. We'll just score 120 to 125 every night. Yeah, I mean that, that's one theory. Is it doesn't matter as long as as long as they have a positive point differential, right? Well, I think it's going to be tough to to go that route because right now their offense is doing fine. They're fourth in the NBA in offensive efficiency. So even though that their defense is 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 trash, um, they might be saying to themselves, "Whatever, we have a top five offense. We can outscore people just fine." But their point differential is zero right now. They don't have a positive point differential really, and so. Um, at this point, I think when you're looking at the playoffs, I think teams are going to be better able to scout you. And so you can get by in the regular season having a high-powered offense. But when things slow down and teams are, opposing teams are able to scout your offensive schemes better, uh, you got to bring it defensively. And so right now, I think analytically, I just don't see it from them. Uh, they can get better. Uh, they can get healthier. Um, but ultimately, I think you, in order to win a championship, and that's the goal here for the Cleveland Cavaliers, to win a championship and to take down the, the Golden State Warriors, you have to be great top five on both ends of the floor. And right now, they're not even close to top five defensively. Uh, if their goal is to just get to the Eastern Conference Finals, sure, they can just try to outscore everyone and rely on a high-powered offense. But if they, want, if they have championship aspirations with LeBron James and they have to have that, then I don't think they can just – hope that they score outscore everyone 120 to 115 so you've talked about the warriors i'm sure you've looked at them from an analytic perspective and kind of i'll call it a theory of what it might take to beat them from an analytic perspective could you tell our listeners here on wharton moneyball kind of what you found like why are they so great analytically and two if you were going to build a team to try to attack them analytically because analytics can do that what would you do well i think there isn't really an answer here (laughs) <laughs> I just don't think that unless you can build an all-star team against the Warriors, uh, it's going to be really hard to beat them in a seven-game series. However, there is some evidence that Kevin Pelton found at ESPN right before I left the company. Uh, Kevin Pelton and I worked on a project in an NBA preview where we looked at the, the factors that help you against the Golden State Warriors, looking at five-man lineups and looking at what type of lineups actually help you um, against the Warriors' best lineup. And the one thing that kind of popped out, it wasn't a strong predictor, but it was a small effect, is, is size. And having guys like Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins, that kind of twin towers 
uh, can actually give them problems. The only issue is that they don't have any real players around them. New Orleans, uh, it would be great if they had shooters, but right now DeMarcus Cousins is their best three-point shooter. I'm going to repeat that. DeMarcus (laughs) Cousins is the best three-point shooter on the Pelicans roster. So they need some better pieces around them in order to compete at the highest level against the Golden State Warriors. I do not think you can you can beat the Warriors at their own game. I think analytically it would bear that out, that if you try to beat the Warriors by having you know multiple wings, versatile wings, uh, I don't think that's the way to go. I think the way to go is to, is to um, zig when they zag. And by that I mean uh, to go big and try to be strong in the middle and crush them on the boards. And something like Boogie and Anthony Davis, that could work if they had any semblance of shooting around them because it's really easy to defend. When you just pack the paint against them, uh, they absolutely need some shooters and need, need more dynamic wing players because right now I don't see anyone competing with the Warriors in a, in a seven-game series. And you include in that, let me just say, by the way, so how do you explain, and maybe you would say this is the wrong strategy, um, how, did you, how do you explain kind of the Houston move or the OKC move, which basically brought in, you could argue, they're trying to fight the Warriors on the Warriors' terms. They didn't bring in Biggs. They brought in Chris Paul. They brought in Paul George. They brought in Carmelo. I mean, they're doing exactly what you would suggest and I would suggest the analytics bear out you shouldn't do. Well, I think one thing that they are trying to do is increase the variability. So one thing that, um, you know, if you're going to play one-on-one against Michael Jordan, you don't want to play a game one to, you know, you don't want to play a game 21. You want to play it a game one, first shot wins. Because you know that the longer that this game goes, the talent is just going to is going to win out. Eventually, Michael Jordan is going to beat you. If you try to play a game of 21, you got no chance. But if you have a game of one, maybe you're going to have a chance there. So what I think the the um the rockets or the thunder are trying to do is to get better three-point shooters to increase that variability so that crazy stuff happens um you know if they if they get hot they can maybe eke out a win or two against the warriors i know but this was your point are you getting hot for seven games that's the point like are you yeah you could take you sure you could get better enough to win to lose maybe four one four two but are you getting to seven Right, and and to do that, you need to have a defense and you need to have rebounding. And right now, the, the Houston Rockets are absolutely built for 2017 when you have uh, tons of three-point shooting, spacing the floor, pick and roll, and kick out to shooters. It's a great it's a great offense. They'd probably be the, the championship favorites if it weren't for the Golden State Warriors. But the problem is that they got too many weapons, too many dynamic players, too many good defenders. Uh, ultimately trying to, to get hot at the three-point line, it's not going to work against the Warriors because you know what? They can outshoot you. So they're just as good. They, they probably say to you, hey, anything you can do, we can do better. And the Houston Rockets might be looking at this and saying, look, there just aren't enough great bigs out there to maximize that kind of weapon against the Warriors. They might be looking around and saying, there's only a few great centers worth it, and we can't get those guys. So in 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 reality, why don't we just go for you know maximizing our three-point shooting and trying to increase the variability so they can take down Goliath? By the way, the point of increasing variance is something we talk about all the time at Wharton Moneyball. If you have lower mean, go for high variance. But let me transition from your topic of great bigs to I'm sitting here for those people that follow us at, at W Moneyball. You'll see my tweet about it. And Tom, thanks, by the way, for retweeting our content. I'm sure we're going to get a lot more followers on at W Moneyball, given that you've retweeted our content. I'm sitting here in my Sixers sweatshirt, which means, and we're talking about big men. We got to talk about Joel Embiid. So, you know, forget just his 46 
15, <laughs> 7, and 7 night the other night. Um, what do you see in Joel Embiid, and what do you see in the Sixers? You know, a lot of people say that the post-up game is dying um, because of, you know, the, the Maury ball, uh, the Daryl Maury school of basketball, which is increase that variance and shoot threes and, and increase the pace. Well, if you watch Joel Embiid play basketball, it's harkening back to an older time uh, in some respects is that he is a post-up beast. I mean, the, the footwork that he has down there, I've nicknamed him Shaquem because he's a blend of Shaq and Akeem Olajuwon. In terms of his footwork, his size, his strength, his skill is through the roof, and he actually has more post-up plays by himself than four NBA teams combined. So the fourth lowest number of post-up plays, the teams that use it the least, you combine their number of post-up plays, and it still isn't enough to outsize Joel Embiid's frequency down there. So he does it a ton, and he's efficient there. He has to cut down on his turnovers a little bit. He gets a little too ahead of himself sometimes, but he's efficient down there on the block, and you wouldn't think that in in today's analytics-driven world because... Three's worth more than two. Yeah, typically three is worth more than two, and post-ups are the least efficient play that you can do because it's hard to draw a foul and you're not shooting from three-point land. So, you know, it's not the most efficient play, but Joel Embiid is really, really good at it, really, really skilled. And another thing he's really good at it is protecting the rim. Last year, he's one of the best rim protectors in the league. So it's not just he's a one-way star. He's a two-way star. When he's healthy, I can't count more than one or two players who's better. I mean, he's that good. He's got a three-point shot. He's got handle. He can pass. He can get to the free throw line, and he can defend. So as long as he stays out of foul trouble and stays out of the injury column, I think he is a superstar, an MVP waiting to happen um, if he's going to be healthy. The question is whether he can play in those back-to-backs and whether he can play 40 minutes a night. I don't think that's advisable for him. But in terms of all-around ability, um, this could be the greatest player uh, at his position. He's got that much talent considering he has only played basketball since he was 16 years old. I mean, it's insane how talented this guy is, and he's only getting better. And he's only played about 45 NBA games. But let me ask you a related question. Is Who's got the greater upside, in your view, from an analytics perspective, as from your eye looking at the games? We also have this other guy on the Sixers who's doing okay for a rookie. His name's Ben Simmons. Um, and it, would you rat if you had to trade, Sixers aren't trading either of them, who has the bigger upside, Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, in your view? Oh, man, that's such a tough question. Can, do I have to choose? I no, like but you just said you thought he was an MVP-quality yeah. player and maybe one of the best players in the NBA, and I'm saying, well, I've only seen Ben Simmons for whatever, 16 games, but, you know, the guy's looking pretty good. Yeah, he's younger uh, by a couple years, and he's almost averaging a triple-double as a rookie. Um, it's incredible. Uh, I would say probably just because of his size, uh, Joel Embiid has the most upside because you can't you can't teach height. And I know that Ben Simmons is six ten, six eleven, but when you have Joel Embiid running a fast break and you're stepping around guys when he's seven two um, and almost three hundred pounds, uh, I don't even know what to do. I just sit there and laugh um, because this is just him forty five games into his NBA career and he's basically playing as skilled as anybody in the game. He's doing moves that Akeem Olajuwon needed you know, several years to master in the NBA, and he's doing it now. So Ben Simmons, just because of the fact that he doesn't have a three-point shot and he's not 7-2, I mean, it's crazy to say that he has a lower ceiling than someone else in the league. But I think Joel Embiid, if you look at him 
Uh, I don't know where the ceiling is. He's that skilled. He's that quick. His footwork, it, you know, he talks a lot about playing soccer growing up. You can see it with his footwork. I mean, he is so good with his feet, and that's the thing that separated with Shaq and Tim Duncan. It's their footwork. Even though they're huge guys out there, they're like ballet dancers. And I think, I think Joel Embiid just has the full package. And Ben Simmons, not to take anything away from that guy, because he is super talented um, as a 21-year-old in today's NBA, Joel Embiid just has an, a limitless ceiling. So maybe just a last question for you. How do you see the NBA season? We're early in the season, but how do you see the NBA season playing out? What are you looking for? I know you wrote a recent article, like the standings never change after January the 20th. How do you see the NBA season playing out over the next, let's call it, month and a half to get us to January 20th and going forward? Yeah, I think you're going to see some regression on the Boston Celtics defense right now. Opposing teams are shooting just 32% from three-point land, and the average is 36%. I think you're going to see that kind of pull towards the mean a little bit and regress. Um, so I don't think that this 16-2 and two record is going to hold. Um, I don't really know where this, this winning streak is going to go, but I'm curious to see how that defense, if it's going to regress um, to the point where they're going to be, you know, a, still a top-10 defense. But if they continue to play this level of defense, they need to get a little bit better, sharper offensively. Um, you know, they're going to be a fantastic contender uh, uh, in the Eastern Conference. I think they're probably the favorite right now in the East. I just don't see anyone climbing to the point of beating the Golden State Warriors. So from here on out, what I'm looking at is seeing if Gordon Hayward is ever going to come back at, at full healthy and be able to build a, a dynasty in the East. I just don't know if LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers have a future together. So I think right now the best chance is the Boston Celtics with Gordon Hayward healthy, with Kyrie Irving and Jalen Brown um, and Jason Tatum. That's a dynasty in the making in the East, but I still think the Warriors are the king, um, and it's going to be really hard to take down. Even the Rockets or the Spurs, um, you saw the Clippers, they got out to a hot start. They got rid of Chris Paul, and they're now in the dumps. So it's really hard to compete at the highest level here in the NBA. Analytically, I want to see that Boston Celtics team, if they can keep this up, a 16-game win streak, I want to see how far they can take this. But that defense, I don't know. I don't know if it's that that good. I think they're going to see some regression here. But still, Golden State Warriors, they're the heavy favorites to win it all. Well, thanks, Tom. I want to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. I encourage all of our listeners to check out his Basketball Friends podcast to hear more. Um, thank you for joining us. We hope to have you back soon here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks so much for having me on. Great. So that was Tom Harrestrow. Uh, Tom is a part of Spotlight Media Ventures, and it's leveraged the Chat Media Network, and as I said, uh, part of the Basketball Friends podcast. So that has been three quarters here of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have a half hour to go. We're going to talk NFL and an NFL all the time. Please join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for some ACDC. It's hard to follow ACDC, um, but I'll do my best. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And, of course, this is Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM Business Radio 111, powered by the Wharton School. And, again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, we've been doing a lot of tweeting today, this morning, at W Moneyball. And thanks to Tom Haberstroh, also our guest at the 9 o'clock hour, for retweeting us. And, of course, thanks for our guest at 8.30, Chase Stewart, for talking to us uh, about the NFL. So yesterday was sort of a big day in the NFL, but not for a reason that other people that other than me tend to pay attention to. Um, people that have listened to our show know 
I'm a Hall of Fame guy. I love talking about the Hall of Fame. And one of the Hall of Fames I love talking about the most is the one where the semifinal list came out yesterday, which is the Football Hall of Fame. The reason I love the Pro Football Hall of Fame is it's ridiculously difficult to get in. So unlike the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is still hard to get into, um, where I talk about, you know, there's Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3 Hall of Famers, the NFL, they're just not letting anybody into the Hall of Fame. So there were 27, I believe, semifinalists uh, listed yesterday, and I want to talk about a few that caught my eye, but if some caught your eye, again, call us at one eight four four wharton Let's talk about it, or email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We can talk about them as well. Here are some that caught my eye, and a lot of people are going to say, well, of course Eric's going to talk about the most obvious one, one of the greatest receivers in the NFL history, Randy Moss. Um, yes, Randy Moss definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and I hope Randy Moss makes it into the Hall of Fame immediately. But I actually don't want to spend my time first talking about Randy Moss. I want to talk about somebody who is truly transformative to the NFL, but not as a player, but as a coach. I cannot understand, someone's going to have to explain this to me, why Don Coriel, Air Coriel, the man who essentially invented the passing game that we see in the NFL right now. How is Don Coriel not in the Hall of Fame? I just do not understand. Uh, He was a coach in my era as a child. Everything innovative that started in the passing game came from Bill Walsh and Don Coriel. Let's please get rid of this mistake. I beg, if anybody, any of the NFL voters are listening at this point, people that decide, any of the NFL players who decide who gets into the Hall of Fame, the writers, etc., please vote Don Coriel into the Hall of Fame. Someone truly transformative to the NFL. And I wish he had gotten in in his lifetime, but I will accept, if you make correct this mistake and put him in now, I will be extraordinarily happy. There are a lot of other great names. I already mentioned Randy Moss. To me, definite Hall of Famer. I tend to think of people that were great players for long periods of time. So another jumps out. And by the way, this is a tremendous year for the Hall of Fame in football. So in my view, Don Coriel should go in. Randy Moss should go in. How about Terrell Owens? This was a guy that was a transformative player in the NFL. He was transformative, one of the great players in the NFL for an extremely long period of time. He would be a good person to go in. It would be also hard to talk to not talk about another first-time semifinalist for the Hall of Fame. How about the Bears' Brian Urlacher? This was a guy that was the you know in the old tradition of Dick Buckus and all the other great Mike Singletary of the Bears' middle linebackers. How do you not say that Brian Urlacher was kind of the rock? of the NFL for 10 to 15 years. How about another first-time semifinalist? Um, His name was Ray Lewis. He played for the Baltimore Ravens. So if you're talking to me about some of the potentially great NFL classes of all time, and I mean great, imagine I told you, forget my ranting about Don Coriel, although I do hope Don Coriel makes the Hall of Fame. Could you imagine if they let in four people, which, by the way, they rarely let in that many, Ray Lewis, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, and Brian Urlacher. I can't imagine anyone saying, wow, they just let that guy into the Hall of Fame. 
I mean, Ray Lewis, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, and Brian Urlacher were transformative players at their positions. The analytics, both the kind of basic stats like receptions and yards caught and tackles and all that, all of that supports them, and the advanced analytics supports all of them. And by the way, I'm leaving out players like that were great in their era, like Steve Atwater, Tony Baselli, Isaac Bruce, Alan Fanica, Tory Holt, Everson Walls, Simeon Rice. These are great players as well, but we have four or five top, top, top tier Hall of Famers, and I hope they get in. And again, if you want to join the conversation, call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Give me your opinion about the Hall of Fame or tweet it at, at WMoneyball for the next couple weeks. I'll be obviously I follow closely and I respond to Wharton Moneyball, but if you have a difference of opinion about who should be the NFL Hall of Famers, tweet us at, at WMoneyball. Give me your opinion about who you'd like in and we'll certainly uh, bring those people in. Um, the next uh, topic I'd like to switch to relating to the NFL is kind of the NFL predictions for the rest of the season going forward. So um, I talked in the first half hour about how people way overestimate probabilities and they way don't take into a chance the different possible options or outcomes that could happen. So on NFL predictions by 538. Um, they've got a 99% chance for the New England Patriots to make the playoff. Matter of fact, it says greater than 99%, not even 99%, greater than 99%. Okay, maybe. Um, They have a 40-year-old quarterback playing for them in Tom Brady. Uh, They don't have the backup quarterback anymore, Jimmy Garoppolo, who they traded. Let's imagine, just a chance, let, I, I hope it doesn't happen because I want to see the best teams play. Let's imagine, you know, they or, and they don't have Jacoby Brissett too. Thank you, Matt. They've traded all their quarterbacks away. Um, let's imagine Tom Brady were to get injured in the next game. Greater than 99% chance to make the playoffs. Tom Brady gets injured. You don't think it's possible they could go 1-5 in their remaining games, end up 9-7? and seven? Sure, it's possible. Of course it's possible. So this idea, they have the Eagles at greater than 99%. You know, Pittsburgh greater than 99%. I completely agree if everyone stays healthy. So to me, the reason I wanted to bring this up here on Wharton Moneyball is as you're making business decisions, as you're evaluating statistics, I implore you again to think about the topic we talked about in the first half hour, which is, remember I, ta- I gave this example. Are the Golden State Warriors going to probably make it to the finals? Yes. Assuming they're big three or big four, none of them get injured. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you told me Tom Brady hurt his ACL in practice today, I would, de- I would deflate that 99% number of making the playoffs significantly. And when you're making predictions, you have to take that into account. You just must absolutely take that into account. But if... Let's assume everyone stays healthy. On 538, their recent NFL predictions have the Patriots as a 28% chance to win the Super Bowl. 28% chance to win the Super Bowl. I think the way I view it, and it's probably why 28% is not totally unreasonable, right now it's hard to predict them out of the AFC championship game, and maybe they have a 50% chance of winning that game. And then if they go to the Super Bowl, they have a 50% chance to win that game. So you basically say 0.5 times 0.5, they're at about 25%. That's essentially their predictions. So again, uh, it's very exciting to think about, but injuries play a significant role. So uh, we actually have a phone call. We have Charlie from Chicago. Uh, Charlie, uh, this is Eric Bradlow. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Uh, How can I help you today? 
Thanks, Eric. I uh, I just want to add another name that he didn't make the semifinals, but he's always up there contrasting with Don Coriel, and that's Chuck Knox. And he, these are just some interesting points. Number one, he was credited with bringing Namath to the AFL from Alabama. He built that offensive line that won the Super Bowl. He started the first African-American center for the Detroit Lions. He started the first African-American quarterback for the Rams, James Harris. He was also credited with teaching offensive linemen to use their hands as a blocking scheme. And then not to mention, four-time coach of the year. I think he's ranked number eight in all-time wins. He's the number one turnaround artist. He turned around the Rams, the Buffalo Bills, and the Seattle Seahawks. He was inducted to the Ring of Honor for the Seahawks because of how he built that franchise. And yet he never makes it to the semifinalists. So when you talk about transformative individuals to the NFL, I just surprised as a Seahawks fan that he doesn't get the credit that he deserves. I just wanted to point some of those things out. Well, Charlie, first of all, thank you for calling Wharton Moneyball. I really appreciate it. Um, you're right, because he was in that same era. Um, I remember the Chuck Knox teams extraordinarily well. Um, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe Bill Walsh and Don Coriel got more press. But first of all, what you just mentioned, two things. One is his innovativeness in the NFL is impressive. Uh, but secondly, the parts that you also mentioned about his bringing in African-American players, to me, that qualifies you for the NFL Hall of Fame immediately. And so I'd like to thank you for bringing up, and thank you for calling in, um, thank you for bringing up Chuck Knox's name. I think there's room in the NFL for Chuck Knox, too. I'd be happy if Chuck Knox, Don Coriel also joined the Hall of Fame. And this is, again, the kind of conversation we like to have here on Morton Moneyball. Well, yeah, thank you. And thank you, Charlie, for bringing up Chuck Knox's name. It was uh, He didn't make the semifinals, which is why he didn't catch my attention, but he's extremely well-deserving as well. So this is the point of the show where we obviously talk about the games of the week, which means it's time for the Wharton Moneyball matchup. Moneyball matchups. I could let that music, I love ACDC, but I could let this NFL music play all day long. As a matter of fact, I may have to play it in my office this afternoon. That means it's time for the NFL and it's time for the Moneyball matchup. Now, people are like, is Bradlow just going to sit there and pick the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game again for the 17th straight week? No, he's not. But besides not doing that, I'm fortunate to have my friend and my colleague, uh, Dan Loney, the host of the Knowledge at Wharton show, big sports fan. Matter of fact, has been an announcer for sporting events as well, joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Eric, as always, great to see you. Early happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. And, yeah. of course, as we talked about, one of the great things about Thanksgiving, besides being with family, which is crucially important, and the food, which if anybody saw both Dan and I, we know there aren't a lot of meals Dan and I like to miss. <laughs> oh, no. We both like to eat. Uh, but it's football day. And so yeah. there's a big it's you know it's always as we always know the Lions always play on Thanksgiving Day the Cowboys always play on Thanksgiving Day uh we've mixed in another game but um as we always do on Moneyball matchup there's a bunch of interesting games this week in the NFL so let me start with you Dan which game has caught your eye and what prediction do you make for that game Well uh, I just I'll start with Thanksgiving because sure. I, I think that's a, a great uh, a great day of football and for somebody like myself who is a diehard Eagles fan, 
I follow, obviously, the NFC East. And I end up thinking that the game, the night game, the Redskins-Giants game, really becomes interesting. And I say that because the Redskins are probably on the way out right now in terms of the playoffs. But this gives them the opportunity to still get a win and still potentially be in the mix if they can play well over the last couple of weeks. They're seven and a half point favorite at home. The Giants, I, I'm not buying into what happened last week in any way, shape, or form. Uh, they're going to be looking for probably a new coach at the end of the year. I think the Redskins are a very interesting play this week uh, because of the fact of how they lost last week. The fact that they had that game against New Orleans seemingly sewn up, and then the Saints came back tied it late, won it in overtime. I think the Redskins are chomping at the bit to come out and play well, especially with it being on a Thanksgiving night and a short week turnaround. Yeah, you said two things that struck with me, and then I'll pick a game on Thanksgiving, then we'll pick Sunday games as well. Um, I could not agree with you more. Growing up a Giants fan, I'm still somewhat a Giants fan. I'm not buying into it. You know, they're whatever, 12-9 to win against Kansas City. I'm not buying any of that. I think they're an awful team. I think the Redskins, I saw the end of that Redskins-Saint game, and as a Buccaneers fan, I was like, can the Redskins please just hold on to this win and have the Saints lose? Um, They've got to be angry that they gave that game away. They had, matter of fact, they not only had the Saints beaten, but they had a convincing win against a very good team yep. on the road. I mean, that would have been a highlight win for Jay Gruden. Yep. And I just thought if they could have played a game the next day, they would have suited up and played a game the next day. Yep. So I completely agree with your assessment of that game. The game that interests me on Thanksgiving Day is the Vikings at the Lions. Sure. Yeah. You know... <laughs> The Vikings team, and we talked about it during the show. We actually talked about it also with Chase Stewart. I mean, what the Vikings have done with Case Keenum yeah. is remarkable. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you something. They beat up the Rams last week. If you had told me that someone was going to hold the Rams, who, who was going in, maybe they still are, the number one offense in football, yep. the Vikings are a gra- they're a really interesting team. And they're at the Lions. And yep. by the way, I've been bullish, maybe more so than I have. Maybe I'm a little lighter in the pocket because of this. Yeah, right. I've been bullish on the Lions all season. I'm predicting the Lions in this game yeah. because I think they've not played particularly. They're still in it. They're fine. I think they're 6-4. and four. Yep. They're fine. They haven't actually played a good game of football. I'm expecting that to happen this day on Thanksgiving Day. What do you think about Vikings well, Alliance? I'd be interested to know, and I don't know if there's statistical data about this, but but what the records are of the Lions and the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day specifically, and if they actually have an advantage because every year they play at home. They know that it's coming. They know they're going to be playing at their home facility on this particular day, they don't have to travel. They, you know, they mark it into their schedules. They know what's going to happen. I wonder if there is an advantage to either one of those two teams because they are home every Thanksgiving day. Well, the one thing, of course, and we've t- actually we talked about this just last week on Wharton Money, but let's be clear about how you might do. So I don't know the answer, but let's see how yeah. you'd have to do such analysis. There's a couple things you could compare their home records on Thanksgiving Day. One thing you could compare it to is to their overall home record. Yeah. So yeah. do they do better on Thanksgiving Day even than they as a home team would do? Sure. You then, of course, could compare them to their road record and just say, how well do they do home versus road, and is there some differential? Then, of course, what other people also want to ask is, and this is what we talked about last week, what happens then the following week where they yeah. don't have to play for 10 days? Yep. So not only I mean, you can say, well, they're on a short week. Well, at least they're on a short week at home, and then it's followed by a 10-day break. So you could make an argument 
Well, I mean, the Vikings and Chargers are also on a short week, so they get a double advantage, and you could make an argument. I don't know if the effect size is this big, but imagine I told you, would you be shocked if I told you over the last 20 years this has been worth an extra quarter or a half a win? Uh, It would not surprise me, Uh, and and I will say that a little bit of that maybe gets taken away now that the NFL plays Thursday night games all the time. So I, I think that could be... It takes a little bit of something out of it, but I, I, I would believe that there's no question that the Lions or the Cowboys have an advantage here. Well, I, I'm just fascinated by that game. And also, you have to be somewhat fascinated. Then we'll get to the Sunday games quickly. Chargers at Cowboys. I mean, you could argue this is the last stand for it either is. of those yeah. teams. Matter of fact, for either of those two teams. Yeah. I mean, they both have to win. Yep. And if the Cowboys were to lose and go to 5-6, and six, you know, just the math in the, NF, in the NFC... I mean, they're done. They're done. I mean, yeah. I think seven and three takes. Well, right now, I guess the uh, Seattle loss. So six and four is yep. the bottom wild card team. But yep. I mean, five and six ain't getting it done. No. And, and when you switch over to the Sunday games, I'm looking specifically at the Rams and the Saints only because of the fact that the Rams lost last week to Minnesota. The Saints are playing phenomenal football right now. They've won eight in a row after an 0-2 start, and they are the team to me that is most like the Eagles in terms of setup and structure of the team with a great running game and a great defense as well. Well, let's also talk about the fact is when you let's imagine you forecast probabilities of winning the Super Bowl or making the Super Bowl. This game will very likely decide who would have home field against those two teams? And it yeah. may also decide who's in the, let's assume for the moment the Eagles are in the one seed, although that's not a given. But this may decide who the two seed is. Yeah. And as Shane Jensen on our show always talks about, the greatest predictor of who's going to make the Super Bowl is how many coins you have to flip. If you have to play one less game, I don't care what yeah. the other team is. You're in better shape. Yep. This game will probably decide who gets home field among those two. And I think it also will really show whether or not the Rams are truly a a very good team or if they're a team on the way up, but they're still learning a little bit. Who do you like in the game? Oh, I like the Saints, even though it's it's out in L.A. and they'll be playing on grass. And I still subscribe to the fact that the Saints may very well be a little bit of a turf team. But I think the way that they are playing defense right now, and because they can run the ball on on grass, I think they can be a very good uh, – I think they're a, a, a good formula here for uh, for this game. You mean, as a stat you may not have heard because you weren't here when Chase Stewart was on, but he gave us a stat which was fascinating, which I – and I, I give myself credit. I predicted who the previous team was. The Saints are the number one passing team and the number one running team. That hasn't yeah. happened since 2000 in the greatest show on turf. Yeah. And so you're right. They're not only built to run the ball. They're built to pass, and both, and their defense is playing well. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting that the, that the NFL, in terms of having moved so much to the pass, has really kind of filtered back a little bit to the run with some of these teams needing to run the ball very well to be effective. Well, I want to thank Dan Loney for joining me for the Money Mole Batch-Up. Of course, I want to thank our producer, Matt Datz, for supporting me in my solo journey through the last two hours here on Morton Moneyball. And, of course, thanks to Danielle Bruno for all the sound engineering work and producing and, of course, giving me the exciting music. So this has been a very exciting show for me. We obviously have lots of sports coming up tomorrow, football. We have the big Auburn-Alabama game coming up this weekend. So between now and next week. Enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, and this has been a show, Wharton Moneyball.